0: Keywords in Play. You are listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Emily Reid, please introduce yourself in your own words.
1: I'm Emily Reid, I'm currently based in Glasgow because I've just finished my PhD at Aberte University. I'm a curator, writer, and researcher who is focused on the history of curating games specifically in arts contexts. So my practice is kind of a combination of art historical research of these exhibitions as well as developing my own exhibitions
0: you've got all this like a uh, super interesting historical detail that you start the paper with like lynn hirschman leeson's lorna which is billed as the world's first interactive video art disc game are there trends that stand out or are clearly identifiable and are there any shows or works in particular that you think stand out as like turning points in terms of exhibiting video games in museums and galleries
1: yeah, I guess when I started my research, I was thinking about the major shows that people often said were, you know, it was the first video games oriented exhibition. And in, in some interpretations, I guess, of the term like a video game exhibition, that could be true. So exhibitions like Game On or Game Masters or the video game show at the v that was very recent, all of those kind of had a language of first around them. But I was surprised by actually how far back my research was stretching as I went on.
0: Yeah, you go back to like 1979, which I think is like way earlier than a lot of people will think video games have appeared in the museum.
1: Yeah, so that was kind of, um, I think 1979 or like the early 80s, was when Lynn Hirschman Leeson's Lorna um, was in development and was first shown. That one has an interesting um, thing that comes up when you first open it that is basically like you're about to play the, the world's first interactive video art disk, it kind of comes close to saying a video game. It's it's kind of video gamey. It, it uses sort of the same technology for Laserdisc or DVD menus where you use like a remote control to kind of navigate around and select different things. And also an important part of how it's displayed is this environment of like replicating the living room that the character stays in, in the story as well. So you're, you know, when, when I saw it installed, there was like a couch you were playing with a remote control it was kind of on this like old style tv um so yeah so that's that's a very interesting early project that was like kind of almost called a video game in a way
0: i mean there's a sense that there was just a lot different at stake in leeson making the claim to be the world's first interactive video art disc game i guess that's that's what's super interesting about this uh you know how different strategies have been employed to get these things called video games or things like video games into the museum so what were some other like kind of of importance. Uh, works and turning points that you discovered.
1: There was another project right around the time, maybe maybe shortly after Lorna, and it was by an artist who works primarily in performance called Michael Smith, and he made, I think it was a Commodore game mod called Mike Builds a Shelter, and it's kind of this strange game about moving boxes of supplies down into your basement fallout shelter, and it was very much dealing with the, the Cold War vibes of the early 80s, and that was part of an installation that he he did at the time as well so those are two really interesting projects that even to me kind of came before the first major institutional show of video games which was hot circuits at the museum of the moving image in 1989. so far as i know there's always there's always a chance that there's one that i haven't found yet but that's kind of the one that is the first show that was you know, about depicting video games as historical objects, which is really interesting. So it is a lot earlier than I was expecting to have to trace back.
0: You also talk about that uh, Beryl Graham 1996 exhibition, Serious Games, uh, which actually you know looked back towards the history of performative and uh, interaction in art, which goes back to like Fluxus, um, conceptual art and performance art. And it backgrounded the technology rather than representing these things as fundamentally technological objects. It was more about the concept of interaction.
1: Yeah, I think an interesting thing that Beryl Graham talks about um, when she's reflecting on this exhibition exhibition was that the way that she was framing these things kind of as, you know, new developments in the way that people were creating interactive or participatory art versus the way that the gallery wanted to frame it. She kind of had a lot of battles with them on how to like advertise it because they kind of wanted to do like, you know, like the pixel art, the fractal art, like the it's fun for kids. But a lot of the artworks are, you know, kind of quite complex or like, you know, a little bit thematically mature for kids. so. Even then, like I think I think people would say if you're trying to present video games in a cultural light, you kind of run into the same problems as, you know, 1996.
0: That kind of like idea that they're fun in some ways can interfere with trying to exhibit them as serious objects.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I guess it's only been challenged by art practices recently, but I guess the, the very like modernist paradigm of art is that you go into the art gallery and you're kind of regarded by the artwork as this like detached like eyeballs and brain that you're like taking in these works of painting and sculpture and just kind of wrestling with it in your mind and that's the experience that the artist gives you so it's it's quite it's quite serious (laughs) and it's also like a very you know all of the work is internal rather than you know externally doing something
0: Yeah, and I guess that's a a good kind of moment to bring up the the Claire Bishop quote that you kind of work with a bit uh, in the article. She kind of points out that participatory media have this kind of reputation of being empowering of, of people, but she kind of challenges that as well. She says that there's this kind of like tendency to snap to grid on on one of two positions, which is either a disparagement of the spectator because they happen to do nothing. They're just like passive spectators. And this this kind of like goes back to even um, some of the Frankfurt School debates about uh, about uh, media and art, I think, as well. Or you've got the converse claim that those who act are inferior to those who are able to look played ideas and have a critical distance on the world that kind of like discourse in terms of the gallery has been a long running thing and it appears in the case of video games in a different sort of a way rather than video games being this hugely new thing in terms of interactivity that uh, gallerists are just dealing with now
1: yeah Claire bishop really goes to the effort, like um, her book that I'm drawing from, Artificial Hells, um, it is kind of a general history of participatory or um, what some people would call interaction based art forms, but she sees interaction as like a technical term. So it's just like a technological device that's purely responsive. So she kind of excludes any sort of new media art from this historical overview. So, so it's arguable that it's a little bit, you know, a little bit tricky of me to use it to describe um, what I was trying to do with a video game exhibition, but I think there's enough game studies perspectives that kind of support that the reception and the culture around video games, whether it's people watching someone play in an arcade or you know someone kind of fiddling with something in a gallery, like it does kind of become social um, and it becomes a social space in a way. So I don't think I'm (laughs) I don't think I'm going too far. Um, But yeah, she kind of brings up how it's a bit of an issue how a specific like form of kind of celebratory perspectives on participatory art emerged um, around the same time that arts funding was very kind of hollowed out by um, neoliberal reforms in several countries. So it was basically that, you know, the arts are kind of seen as disposable because they're this kind of, you know, pretentious elite culture. They're not really helping anyone, you know, on the ground. So art projects that are, like, kind of something relatable, something interactive, something like, you know, get your hands dirty and stuff like that. So she does kind of expose it as, like, this slightly condescending approach that's like, you know, people who are not fully Like integrated into the art world and like of the class where they're comfortable with those things, like they just they just can't appreciate things that aren't you know engaging. Um, These art practices are seen by Claire Bishop as kind of amelioratory to you know things that would have helped with issues of poverty and social life and mental health that are kind of cut back on. Um, She she sees it as you know potentially. Obviously, it's interesting to her because she wrote a whole book about it. But she also sees it as like potentially, you know, condescending and potentially a bit directing. You know how art practices are supported by institutions from that point on, um, just because it presents this very binary view of you know something's either participatory or thoughtful participatory or you know pretentious it is like this interesting back and forth
0: that kind of like connects very much to your own curatorial and academic practice as well i think where you're kind of like questioning a lot of the time not just whether it's interactive or not but like what kind of interactivity are we talking about here questioning these strategies of legitimation that um allow these objects to enter the art world sort of a space or the aesthetic space. Can you give us a quick introduction to the Blank Arcade and your process in selecting some of the works that went into that?
1: The Blank Arcade is kind of a long-running exhibition that will occasionally go on view at iterations of DIGRA, which is the Digital Games Research Association conference that happens every year. Usually the person who can follow it from space to space is Lindsay Grace, who's an American game developer and curator. I was working with him as a co-curator on this, and it's kind of a a juried selection. So basically, we have a window for people to submit their work during a certain period of time. And then we select, I think this time we ended up selecting eight works, um, which is a smaller selection than usual, but I think it kind of worked in the Hannah McClure space, which is kind of kind of compact. Um, So selecting from that and kind of developing a theme around them that kind of relates to, you know, new experimental play and games and what people in the Digger community and more broadly just the international game dev community are doing. So yeah, it was really interesting. We kind of focused on games that offered a really wide variety of types of play and approaches to the idea of being playful. So i would say you know not not many of them are straightforwardly recognizable as like commercial video games for sure and some of them are hard to recognize as games at all because they're more about creating a playful context or environment
0: one that kind of like stood out to me at least is uh katakata. Kata. i guess like what you're talking about as well is that the idea of exhibiting a video game or a game like you know work of some kind you can't take for granted that idea of the player um because you're essentially like showing this somehow or exhibiting this thing to a gallery goer who may have certain playful predilections or characterizations and that's part of your research as well which i, I thought was really interesting asking people what they what they thought and felt and gathering some data in that sort of a way can you take us through the katakata Kata work and how it brought out some of those research questions that you were asking
1: katakata Kata is basically an interactive sculptural work it's by Kirsty Keach who is a Scottish sound artist software game designer she makes a lot of games that use interesting um, procedural audio techniques so this is this is a sculpture that's basically like a very large Jacob's ladder so that toy that kind of you flip the top of it and all the other parts of the toy kind of clatter down it's one of those that is attached to like a large um, stand and has a servo motor at the top and that motor is controlled by people's cell phone, um, like the gyroscopes within your smartphones. If you connect to the Wi-Fi device that is inside the sculpture, you can be the person in the queue system who's controlling that particular way that you flip it. And each time it flips down, the action of the Jacob's Ladder kind of clattering creates this short audio recording that you can kind of warp by twisting your phone in other ways. So you kind of make this recording by moving the sculpture in the gallery space. And then by moving your phone around more, you kind of replay it and warp it um, through, you know, the speakers that are around the sculpture. So it's technically a little bit tricky. It's good that she was based locally at the time because we did have to kind of call her in for repairs sometimes, because um, it is a very complicated piece.
0: It sounds hard to describe as well. Isn't
1: yeah, it? but I think it's, it's really beautiful and it's so it's so interesting once you get it going to be able to like flip your phone around and then it makes this entire sculpture move. Um, the tricky thing in considering it though, it was kind of a risky choice because it requires someone to have and be able to connect to the network with their phone. And that is kind of, you know, an insider tech knowledge type skill. So in that case, we made sure because, you know, we were going to get a broad audience. It was the it was the kind of um, student gallery at Abertay. So it attracted digital arts people. It attracted like the game design students. It attracted, you know, general people who are interested in art from around the university. So not everyone may have been, like, totally comfortable with that. Um, So we did have gallery attendants who had their own phones already connected to it so they could, you know, demonstrate it if someone, you know, was not comfortable or didn't have the tech to do it.
0: Because there's a lot of discussion in VR and and games in general about onboarding people and whatever the opposite of onboarding is, which is <laughs> yeah. airlocking or something. I think <laughs> I've heard it called. You do raise the question of accessibility as well. And uh, one of the respondents to your research, I think, it was an older person who said they only found one particular very analog sort of work approachable. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think that comment was about the abstract playground. AP1 which is a project by the artist and game developer Will Hurt and he he presents it in a very particular way it is just kind of like this 3D unity game where pressing buttons changes the color of the shapes changes how they move makes sounds but it's all it's all really interesting because it's kind of these very interesting geometrical shapes that are based on modernist architecture so so it it, it does have this like you know, very, very playful, very, very cool kind of vibe. Um, But the way that he presented it in this case was with a panel of buttons. So it wasn't like a computer keyboard or a game controller. It was just, it was just these, these buttons. And I thought it was really interesting to kind of put that right near the entrance because you get up to the gallery by an elevator most of the time, and the buttons were, you know, the same kind of button, like, the, the kind of, like, round, flat, plastic ones that you press in an elevator, so I thought that was kind of, like, you know, a good kind of onboarding way to, like, not be like, Here, here's an Xbox 360 controller, like, good luck, like, be the first thing that you encounter, you know, because most people aren't going to know what to do with that.
0: And I I guess that kind of raises the question of um, a lot of the works that you created, as you said, don't present themselves immediately as video gamey in that kind of you know something we all recognise when we see it. But it's hard to actually define. You also make this point about um, the rise of indie hits in a way that facilitated uh, the shift in kind of like mainstream galleries for accepting video games. Previously, it had to be a sort of like artsy or very, you know, artistic sort of a use of the technology. Indie in some ways helped to smooth the transition for more mainstream galleries to take up exhibiting video games in a certain sort of a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it it's almost a cliche at this point, like the, the the point of reference where like a lot of institutions were like, Wow, maybe video games can be art. <laughs> is is like is like journey or flower? Like this is the ones yeah, that yeah, always yeah. come up, and I don't know. I kind of get sick of it. It's like it's like if every like art show you went to started with a Picasso painting. Like yeah, <laughs> it's like okay, there's there's other stuff, but I guess the thing is that like the process of indie kind of definitively differentiating itself from video games in general, you know, kind of the same way that independent cinema or independent music was kind of a claim towards like, you know, higher ideals and kind of more accurately reflecting like personal expression. And I think that's a frame that, you know, art institutions for better or worse are much better at dealing with. So I think that was part of it. But yeah, I also think it's a bit problematic to say that like... Indie games were kind of like artistic games, like they just kind of came out of you know nowhere and you know, like appeared in like 2007 or something. Because there's always kind of been this underlying strand of non-mainstream production, um, as long as video games have existed. Things like modding communities and like homebrew and other kind of small scale, like postcard ware, like all those sorts of things. Those are arguably, like, a very similar ethos to indie games in some cases, but they're much harder to, like, put a fence around as a separate piece of artwork. Like, especially, like, modding or homebrew, because those are, you know, like, potentially... You know, technically illegal. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what is recognizable to institutions in these indie games that are those indie darlings that always get exhibited. But maybe legality is one of like the huge ones, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was like an interesting article. I, I don't know if it was like offering an alternative perspective, but the reason that Super Columbine RPG was removed. It was like the the kind of like Sundance adjacent games festival, and that was one of the things that was made for it. They were trying to make the argument that it wasn't removed because it was too controversial. It was actually removed because it used licensed music, which is kind of like that's kind of a thing in in the RPG Maker community. Like a lot of them just kind of have like you know just dragging over like the MP3s you got off of LimeWire and making that the background music to your you know Final Fantasy clone. If you're using this practice that's kind of like embedded in the community that the the thing that you're using is coming from, you know, that that's like over the course of the history of like video game communities on the Internet, that's probably going to be at least partially illegal or at least Nintendo is going to have a problem with it.
0: There's an interesting connection there with the history of like Remix and, you know, the politics of taking existing stuff and redeploying it. Which I guess brings us to the question of like what you've learned since that exhibition because that, that was in 2016 right, Blank Arcade? Yeah. And you've done uh, heaps of other stuff and there seems to be uh, the question of like what you're working on at the moment and how your, your ideas have changed since that research and exhibition context.
1: Yeah, so since then, um, the other two projects that I did, which I discuss in my thesis, were installation-based projects that were focused on either a single game or works by a single person with the collective We Throw Switches, who are based in Edinburgh. So that was really fun, and that was kind of a more experimental, like, party or festival type atmosphere to do things in, so it didn't have to be as consistent or as sturdy (laughs) as they expect things to be when you put it in an actual gallery um so, so it let me be a lot more experimental since then i've also done um i helped out with pixels x paper at the baby castles gallery which was a really interesting exhibition i kind of curated the flat game section of it and then we also worked with blake andrews who um was the person who's working specifically with Baby Castles and Ebeth, who's someone from the Bitsy community. Um, and it was kind of representing both Flat Games and Bitsy as these communities that have grown around a specific approach to game making. And they're both, you know, very kind of hands-on, collaborative, just kind of pick up either your pen and pencil or the, you know, bitsy online doodle thing and just do it. And it's really interesting to me to change my practice. No, not like totally change my practice, because obviously I still care about like installing things in interesting ways and making them, you know, appealing so that people can both kind of watch them, engage with them and kind of switch between those two modes if they want but also making it so that it's informative about the community and how the kind of context and tools the community creates contributes to what they produce. So I guess that would be my main interest right now. Um, I'm still really into flat games and bitsy. I've made several of them since working on that exhibition. And it's just very interesting, very fun, um, so I'm excited to keep working on it.
0: In a, in a certain kind of way, maybe the community has replaced the gallery, you know, the physical space, I guess, as your focus.
1: Yeah, I think there is a lot of interest definitely in commercial games in terms of like, you know, getting the approval or getting like the cultural clout that comes from like an art institution noticing you. I would say in indie games there's much more of a focus on like, when we do an exhibition it's like, or a festival, it's representing a community or creating a space for people to experience these games rather than some kind of, you know, outside art people giving us a check mark, you know?
0: (laughs) Which is nice when it happens, but like...
1: Yeah, I I think you can't write off, you know, the value of larger art institutions being interested in games entirely because it is going to be an important part of negotiating their accessibility in the future because a lot of copyright laws around games like completely just hamper their ability to ever be preserved and also you know preserving them and preserving elements of their history so i think like larger institutions are going to have to have a hand in that so i don't want to write them off entirely but there's also a lot of important things that are going on at the community level and in terms of how they self-present through like festivals and events and that kind of thing
0: well, maybe we should talk to a lawyer next.
1: <laughs> maybe.
0: If people want to keep a track of what you're getting up to in the future, where should they go?
1: I am on Twitter. So I'm at netgal underscore emi, E-M-I. So that's my Twitter account. I also have my website, which is very old fashioned because I love doing it the old Neopets pet page style way. And that's just net. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Emily.
1: Thanks.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the DIGRA archives at digra.com.